In Warsaw, it's freezing under partly cloudy skies today, Monday, January 7th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. President Obama rolls out his picks for top national security posts. Looks like he's trading his team of rivals for a team of mentors. Obama is gathering around him as his closest top aides in his cabinet, the senators who really sort of brought him along when he was a freshman senator from Illinois. And later, India's debate about sexual violence sparks new conversations among Indian Americans, although some subjects are still taboo. I know someone who is a psychiatrist that won't admit to her parents that she's living with her boyfriend. It's crazy. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline health care workers who help them along the health care journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. President Obama today nominated former Senator Chuck Hagel to be his next defense secretary, and he selected White House counterterrorism advisor John Brennan to head the CIA. My number one criteria in making these decisions was simple. Who is going to do the best job in securing America? These two leaders have dedicated their lives to protecting our country. I am confident they will do an outstanding job. The president urged Congress to confirm his nominees as quickly as possible. With Hagel's nomination for defense secretary and his nod to John Kerry for secretary of state, President Obama is building a national security team headed by Vietnam veterans. Michael Hirsch of the National Journal has reported on both men and their relationship with Obama. He says the significance of their nominations goes beyond the fact that they're both combat veterans. Well, it's quite remarkable. Uh, It's not just that they uh, were both in Vietnam. It's that by both their admissions, that is Hagel and Kerry, uh, over the years, uh, their experiences uh, were profound in shaping their worldviews. Kerry, of course, uh, became famous. He really was first rocketed to national celebrity in 1971 when he made an appearance before uh, the same Senate Foreign Relations Committee that he now chairs and said, you know, how do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? Mm. Uh, Which was a much quoted comment, even even inspired a Bruce Springsteen song uh, years later. Uh, And according to, you know, people close to Kerry, this is going to inform in a very profound way his tenure as Secretary of State. As one of his aides described to me, Kerry is the kind of guy who's going to get on that plane and go for another round of diplomacy when everyone else says it's not going to work simply because he's had the experience uh, of war that was so uh, bitter and, and, and so, so personal to him. Uh, you know, Hegel uh, has talked about his Vietnam experience in a very similar way. Uh, he was there during the Tet Offensive. He was an enlisted man, as President Obama said today, uh, who was hit, you know, wounded uh, by shrapnel, uh, involved in life-threatening situations or in two, two Purple Hearts, uh, has said to me and other reporters over the years repeatedly uh, that he swore to himself when he was on the ground in Vietnam during combat, that if he ever got a chance, if he was ever in a position of responsibility, he would not let an unnecessary war happen again. And of course, Hegel became 
uh, I think most noted in the early days of the war on terror after 9-11 when he broke with his president, President Bush, and his own party uh, to initially oppose the uh, Iraq invasion. As far as Chuck Hagel, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is having seen the real consequences of foreign policy decisions made while he was uh, in Vietnam, that's going to affect him as Secretary of Defense. Specifically, how do you see that playing out? I see Hagel uh, advocating, as he has in the past, for uh, a very restrained U.S. response to new crisis situations, whether uh, it's Libya uh, or the Syrian, you know, civil war that's going on now, and there's a debate inside the Obama administration about how forthrightly uh, the U.S. should get involved, whether we should directly aid the Syrian rebels with weapons. Uh, Hagel, very plainly, based on his uh, past experience, his voting record, uh, things he said, uh, you know, uh, as senator, he spent 12 years in the Senate. Uh, all those things indicate that that he is going to be the voice of extreme restraint. Now, uh, Michael, you've pointed out in uh, the National Journal uh, something else that Senators Kerry and Hagel have had in common over the years. They've been foreign policy mentors to Barack Obama. Can you talk about this group? I mean, you, you've referred to them as the team of mentors. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, in his uh, comments, uh, particularly going all the way back to 2008, uh, Barack Obama has talked about the influence of Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals, which, of course, referred to the cabinet that Abraham Lincoln assembled. Uh, Obama cited that as a model, and, of course, he ended up picking his number one rival, Hillary Clinton, as the Secretary of State. Now, in the second term, though, what we're seeing is more of a team of mentors approach, as I call it, because Obama is gathering around him as his closest top uh, aides in his cabinet, the senators who really sort of tutored him, brought him along when he was a freshman uh, senator from Illinois. Recall that, you know, Obama was actually senator for a very brief time. Uh, and so he sought the advice of Joe Biden, now his vice president, of John Kerry, chairman of the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, and of Chuck Hagel, who was a sort of Republican centrist and maverick. Mm. So you do see uh, a remarkable alignment of views here. Uh, and you see this president, uh, after one term, reaching back to this team of mentors who helped him along when he was really very new on the national scene. I think that's very striking. Michael Hirsch, chief correspondent for the National Journal. Thank you. Thank you. A key issue that will immediately face the new defense secretary will be managing the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Afghan President Hamid Karzai is visiting Washington this week for talks on the future of his country once the U.S. and NATO pull out most of their troops by the end of 2014. But the shape and speed of that drawdown and what comes next has yet to be decided. Adam Entis is national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. He's in Washington. Uh, Tell us, first of all, Adam, why is Karzai coming to Washington? What does he want to say? to Washington? What does he want to hear? Well, at at this point, he's coming here because the president wants to talk to him about the shape of the way the U.S. would be postured after 2014 in terms of the numbers of troops that the U.S. would keep there. Uh, Obama wants to be able to kind of assure Karzai that the U.S. uh, does envision a a long-term agreement that would keep some number of troops Right now, the Pentagon is looking at anywhere from 3,000 to possibly 6,000 or 9,000 staying there after 2014. So what kind of deal would the White House like to see kind of in the bag or at least a fundamental of a deal in the bag by the time Karzai leaves Washington? 
Well, at this point, it's not clear that they're going to be able to reach this agreement uh, during this visit. And I think the visit is largely designed to kind of lay the ground and assure Karzai that the president intends on trying to keep a force there to try to promote some stability in Afghanistan after the pullout is complete. And in turn, uh, President Karzai is seeking assurances that the U.S. is going to support his security forces long term. And so he's come here with a wish list of uh, weapons that he wants the U.S. to provide that would help him secure his country potentially after 2014. Adam, do you think the need for that hardware says a lot about uh, Afghanistan's ability to kind of get its forces ramped up to take care of themselves? It certainly does. And it also says a lot about uh, how the military, the U.S. military is coming to grips with the expected much smaller force that they're going to have there post-2014. The way the White House is uh, moving the process, the writing is really on the wall. It's going to be a a rather bare bones presence post-2014. And as a result, the U.S. is really going to have to do a lot over the next year, uh, next two years, to get the Afghans in a place where they can actually mobilize and deploy their forces in a, in a way to counter the Taliban if the fighting picks up after 2014. So step back a sec, Adam, for us. Uh, what is your sense of Obama's direction in his second term now? I mean, w- without the need to secure re-election, what's the big headline for Afghanistan? Well, I think like you saw with Iraq in uh, 2011, the expectation is is that uh, the president is going to move very quickly to uh, draw down the 66,000 troops that are currently in Afghanistan. So we're talking about a force at the end of 2013 that is roughly where the uh, U.S. troop levels were when President Obama came to office in 2009. And then uh, in 2014, you're going to see a very rapid drawdown again. General Allen would like to taper this process, tie it in with uh, key events such as Afghan presidential elections in 2014, uh, expected handovers of remaining districts and provinces to fuller Afghan control. But it's unclear whether the White House has the patience or is going to be pushing for for that to happen on a more rapid basis than General Allen would like. Mm. And where does uh, Chuck Hagel, the nominee for defense secretary, stand on this? Chuck Hagel, if he's confirmed as defense secretary, will move aggressively to uh, carry out a rapid drawdown of forces in 2013 and 2014 and isn't going to be trying to fight the administration on them, which is something that you saw when Robert Gates was uh, secretary of defense and uh, to a certain extent uh, under Leon Panetta. So I think uh, the Hagel Defense Department is going to be much more in lockstep with the White House on this. Adam Entis, national security correspondent with The Wall Street Journal. Thank you. Great. Thank you. A legend in the world of journalism died this weekend. His name, Enrique Meneses. For over half a century, Meneses worked as a photographer and foreign correspondent for news outlets in Spain and Europe. He's most remembered for being the first to photograph and interview Fidel Castro during his guerrilla campaign in Cuba. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Barcelona. Enrique Meneses was a guy with a knack for being on the front lines of history, even before he became a journalist. He was born in Spain in 1929, just as the U.S. stock market crashed, setting off the Great Depression. Soon after, his family escaped the Spanish Civil War, settling in Paris. Then the Nazis invaded. I was 11 years old, Meneses told Spanish national television a couple of years ago. I got my little brother and sister on the last train out of Paris, heading for the Spanish border. All we had to eat was a couple of tortillas. The train was overflowing with wounded French soldiers, he said, and the Germans were machine-gunning the engine to try to stop us from leaving. 
After the war, Manessa's parents wanted him to become a diplomat, but his dad was a journalist and he followed suit. A decade later, he got the scoop of his life. Quise hacer una foto suya de, de espaldas y en el momento que apretaba el obturador, pues se dio la vuelta y por eso está un poco movido el rifle. Here Manessa shows off his photo of the young bearded revolutionary Fidel Castro hiding in the mountains of central Cuba in 1957. That image and others first appeared in Paris Match and became the image of the Cuban Revolution. Manessa spent four months with Castro and fellow rebel Che Guevara. Both fighters were then virtually unknown, but Menese said he could sense greatness in one of them. Truth is, he said, it never even occurred to me to stick around the base camp that Che was running. The guy never left. I went following Fidel through the hills, and I mean right behind him, literally. I was second in line during the patrols. Menese's nose for the big story and his courage took him from the Suez crisis in Egypt to the American South to cover the civil rights movement. Up into his 60s, he was still working, covering the siege of Sarajevo from inside the bombed-out city. Author and New Yorker writer John Lee Anderson says he knew Meneses by name for years. They were connected by Cuba. Meneses wrote a book called Fidel Castro. Anderson's is entitled Che Guevara. But they didn't meet until about 10 years ago, when Meneses had finally been sidelined by cancer. You were very aware when you were with him, okay, Enrique's 83, he's, he's got a oxygen tube going into his nose, but he's ignoring it. He looked and seemed like a kid. I always felt that I was with a contemporary when I was with him, someone even maybe younger in spirit than myself. And I had no doubt that if he was physically capable, he would have hit the road at the drop of a hat again, just like he'd done so many times um, since he was young. Anderson calls Meneses one of the last of the gentleman adventurers. Yo siempre digo que en lugar de sangre lo que tengo es tinta de imprenta. Instead of blood in my veins, Menese said in one of his final interviews, I've always said I have ink. For the world, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. You can see some of Enrique Menese's pictures of the Cuban Revolution. We've got a link at theworld.org. Still ahead, the healthy island made famous by a hot sun. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. How much would you pay for a fish? Well, the head of a popular sushi restaurant chain in Tokyo just paid $1.7 million for a single bluefin tuna. At more than $3,000 per pound of fish, that better be some good tuna. Paul Greenberg is the author of Four Fish, the Future of the Last Wild Food. Now, fish is a traditional dish eaten by the Japanese for the New Year, Paul, and each year the prices in the famed Tsukiji fish market keep chalking up a new record. But a million and a half dollars for a single fish, is that excessive, or is this really what good bluefin or Toro, as they call it, is worth. You know, I think it's something of a stunt, to tell you the truth. The person who bought this $1.7 million fish, I think, set the previous record last year for $700,000. And I think there's a certain kind of status associated with buying a somewhat rare thing for a lot of money. So I don't think it really reflects the true price of bluefin in the world, but certainly bluefin is a very pricey fish in general. Well, if it's a stunt, I mean, it could be a pretty expensive stunt. Won't that drive up the cost of bluefin in restaurants and fish markets around the world? 
Well, I think what it'll do is keep bluefin on the radar as this status symbol fish, which is something I think that's not really very good for the fish. You know, I've had a lot of tuna over the course of my life. I've eaten yellowfin and bluefin, and I've had very good yellowfin tuna, which is a much more common tuna than a bluefin, and it is not more inferior than a bluefin tuna. So I I think what it's going to do is keep people talking about bluefin, and for a certain kind of sick consumer who wants to, you know, really just show how fancy he is when he goes out to eat, it's going to unfortunately keep it high atop priceless on fancy menus. Paul, where did the bluefin reputation uh, come from? Why is it so valuable and sought after? Well, it's actually a relatively recent thing. As recently as 40 years ago, the Japanese didn't really particularly like bluefin. But my sources indicate to me that bluefin started coming into the Japanese diet after the American occupation when we actually introduced beef eating and fattier foods into the Japanese diet. Then there was another thing that happened, which was in the late 60s, sport fishermen would go after these, you know, 500,000 pound fish in Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island, and they were just sort of throwing them in the garbage afterward. At the time, Japanese businessmen were sending over a lot of electronics to the United States and then flying the planes back empty. At a certain point, somebody realized, well, if you have all these empty cargo holds, maybe we should fill them up with something else going back. And so these big bluefins started going back in the empty holds that had previously held TV sets and radios and so forth. Paul, how endangered is bluefin tuna? Well, it depends on which bluefin you're talking about. There are actually three different species of bluefin around the world. There's the Atlantic, the Pacific, and then the Southern. And the Atlantic and the Southern have been markedly overfished and are pretty, pretty low abundance. Pacific, it's suspected that they are not doing so well either, but we actually don't really have great stock status information. And people are drawn to this sort of enigma of scarcity in the same way that people are drawn to, you know, rhino horn or elephant tusks. When people see things slipping through their fingers and into extinction, there's two reactions. It's either the more ethical among us want to save it for generations, and the less ethical just want to eat it and get it before it gone and they want to be among the last to have tried it. I think there are that many bad people in the world who think that way. So from an environmental point of view, what should I know before I order an expensive piece of sushi or really any piece of sushi? When you go to have sushi in American restaurants, quite often it's going to be tuna that's headlining the menu. And I've certainly read that there's been some radiation detection in seafood, you know, off of Japan and a big predatory fish that's going to be eating a lot of smaller fish. Geez, I, I certainly uh, would think twice before eating that one. So I guess I always say when people go to have sushi, why not look at some fish that are more abundant and just as delicious that have a better management regime attached to them that make for a more conscientious choice. Paul Greenberg, author of the James Beard Award-winning bestseller, Four Fish, The Future of the Last Wild Food. Paul, good to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. North Korea got some high-profile visitors today. Google's executive chairman, Eric Schmidt, and former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson. The two men say they're on a private humanitarian mission. The U.S. State Department, however, did not approve their trip to the communist pariah nation. Former U.S. North Korea envoy Christopher Hill says the trip gives him a sense of deja vu. Well, frankly, I've seen this movie before, and it often happens when not a lot else is happening or not anything good is, is happening. So uh, Bill Richardson has cultivated relationships there over the years, and I think he's seeing if he can uh, do something. And I, I usually just uh, put these things into one of two categories. Are they harmful or are they not harmful? And I really don't see the harm in this. 
So let's talk about the two main people on this trip. You mentioned Bill Richardson and Eric Schmidt. What, why is the head of Google in North Korea? Do you know? Well, you'll have to ask him, but he's someone who I think likes to get around and observe things firsthand. When I was ambassador in, in uh, Iraq, he uh, showed up there for several days. So I think he likes to kind of get a sense of, uh, of a place. And certainly North Korea, for better or worse, remains uh, one of these very exotic places in the world. And the other person on this trip, a uh, four-day trip to Pyongyang, is former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson. He's taken official and unofficial trips to North Korea in the past decade. He says this is a humanitarian mission. What, what's his goal here? Well, I think he's seeking the release of an American citizen who's been held there for several weeks now, maybe months. The difference is that in the past, while the administration has never supported his trips, they've never opposed them in the way the State Department spokeswoman, Toria Newland, did uh, last week. So obviously not all is well on this trip, but uh, he's someone who's gone there several times. I don't think the North Koreans expect him to deliver much. Much for them. I think they understand sort of where he stands in the pecking order in Washington. So I don't really see any negativity that could come as a result of it. What kind of credibility and rapport does Bill Richardson have with uh, leaders in North Korea that would get this American prisoner freed? Well, first of all, he's a very, very pragmatic person. He would sit down with Milosevic, uh, smoke cigars with him. He would uh, talk to a lot of people that many people outside of the professional diplomatic circles would try to stay away from. So he's very uh, relaxed, very informal. Because he's not carrying any official capacity, he can basically say what he thinks and sometimes just say what he thinks the other person wants to hear. So I think he's got you know a lot of bandwidth to uh, do what he wants to do. And I suspect he's hoping that he can gain the release of an American. And then at the end of the day, no one will criticize a trip that actually comes up with some kind of good thing. Now, Christopher Hill, earlier said that no harm can really come from such trips like this. But the State Department isn't happy with, with this trip and its timing right after this, this rocket launch. So it seemed that not potentially any harm could come from this trip. Well, my own view is that the North Koreans know Bill Richardson pretty well, and they know the fact that he is not a sort of administration surrogate. So I think what the State Department would be worried about is whether the North Koreans would think that he's some kind of envoy from the Obama administration. I think that concern is a little misplaced. I think the North Koreans understand that this does not signal any kind of effort by the Obama administration to uh, ameliorate relationships uh, in North Korea, especially after the recent missile launch. And I think that's precisely the kind of moment where Bill Richardson tries to enter and, and if something can come about, because after all, it can't get any worse, hmm. uh, he could take a little credit for it. Former Ambassador Christopher Hill, now Dean of the Corbell School of International Studies, thank you very much. Thank you. News headlines from the BBC World Service are one minute away. You're listening to The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a South African singer touched by opera at an early age. His father abandoned the family but left a CD with Italian songs. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health. 
preparing frontline health care workers who help them along the health care journey and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The gang rape and murder of a young woman in India has provoked protests and promises of new legislation there. But here in the U.S., it's also stirring a wider discussion among Indian immigrants and their children. They're talking about Indian society and a woman's place within it. The world's Alex Galifant reports from New York. This was the kind of news you couldn't avoid talking about. It was too big. It naturally arose, I think, in a lot of families. And we were all just home for the holidays. Talking with her family, Ashwini Anbarajan brought up something she'd found infuriating. Comments from Indian lawmakers about the young rape victim. Comments that reinforced Anbarajan's view of India as a thoroughbred patriarchy. You know, when I read these comments, like, why is she out at 10 p.m. at night? Girls have to cover up more. You know, the, the women are just party girls that are out there. It really tied into something that I've been hearing my whole life. And Barajan moved to the U.S. from India when she was four. But she says her parents carried with them a sensibility that women shouldn't be free, sexually or even economically. She recently wrote an opinion piece about the subject for the site BuzzFeed, where she works. There's an issue of gender equality, and it's subtle. It's not about they don't have the right to vote or they have to cover up in public. It's societal. It's so ingrained. Even among the men in her own family, Anbarajan says, there was a sense that sexual violence happens and that women need to be better protected by men. I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? They need to be in their proper place. They need to be protected. Um, And then when the time is right, that protection goes from the parents to the husband. To get a sense of whether Anbarajan's view is a common one among Indian Americans, I went to Jackson Heights. It's a South Asian neighborhood in Queens, New York. I stopped to talk with a woman named Kiran. She's lived here with her son for more than 20 years, and she also thinks that Indians need to find new ways to think about women, sex, and relationships. Information they should give, their information about the sex and everything they should give. But there is uh, some uh, shyness and this and this. They can't uh, talk very freely there's, uh, with their uh, children. It should be there. Is it different here? Yeah, it's different here. Yet it's free, everything. Boy and girl, they go outside. What they do, they don't care. Parents. You, you are 16 years, you could do you whatever you want with your girlfriend. And this and this. It's not easy in India. But Ashwini Ambarajan says it's not all free and easy here in the U.S. either. She knows of Indian Americans completely unable to level with their parents about how they're living their lives. I mean, how ludicrous is it that I know someone who is a psychiatrist that won't admit to her parents that she's living with her boyfriend? It's crazy. Still, Ambarajan is optimistic. Change in India comes slowly. It's often chaotic. But she says it always comes from the ground up. Women are playing a huge part in driving India's economy forward. Many of them are moving back and forth between India and the U.S., picking up degrees at American universities before returning home to find work. In India, they respect what is said in the West a lot, and the influence is very high. This is Tuhina. She's a chemical engineer. She just completed her graduate degree in upstate New York. Yes, she says, the Indian government's next steps are in the international spotlight, 
But for her, the real shift in attitudes will come in a more organic way. The way I look at it is like uh, the bonds between sisters and family. Uh, that's much more influential than uh, what you see on TV. Uh, so if I tell my sister something, she's going to be more influenced by it than uh, a friend who is living in uh, India. She already feels things are different in her own home city, Mumbai. Even when I talk to my friends, the relationship dynamics—it's it, changing. It's changing a lot. I'm very happy about that. Now, Mumbai is a global city, more so than Delhi. Even it already gets a lot of that cultural churn from all over the world. Tohina and many of the other voices now speaking out come from educated urban backgrounds. The larger challenge for India then will be to include all of the country's women and men in whatever changes may be on the way. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant in New York. We've heard from many women on this story. You can read their comments at theworld.org. But today we want to focus on the comment that one Indian-American man left on our website. He wrote in part, I, like many of my fellow upper-middle-class Indian males, have been shocked and disgusted by the events. More so, I suspect, we are horrified and embarrassed that we have in some way perpetrated the prevalent misogyny. We either have innocently behaved, condoned, or not condemned such behavior in the past. I, for one, have that sense of guilt. That was a comment sent to us by Bharat Singh. Singh is an urban designer, and he joins us now on the line from his office in Oakland, California. We really appreciate uh, your taking the time to join us uh, online and now on the radio abroad. Help us understand this. What kind of discussions are you having with your male friends about this incident? Most of uh, my comments that I have read on social media of my friends relate to this uh, aspect that I had written about, that most of Indian males are uh, thoroughly shocked by it and have said in a certain fashion that uh, they would be changing their attitudes or they would not stand for this kind of behavior. Where is that coming from, do you think? I've lived about 15 years in India, and it was mostly my adolescence and youth. And the misogyny that everybody's talking about is very prevalent. It permeates everywhere. You know, I think everybody has an idea of this or has experienced it. I came back from a party on New Year's Eve a little earlier than I was expected to, and I heard some screams. Mm, Where was this? Tell us. This was in Delhi. Mm. And I got out, and it seemed to be like a domestic dispute, and I sort of ran up, and the person who uh, was sort of at the door ran away, and I gave chase. I didn't know what it was. After this incident, I was it, this thing came back to me is that, you know, this was probably not a break-in. It was probably uh, an attempted assault. In Delhi, things like this, you really rarely uh, get the police involved in, and so I, that... I really don't know what happened to that to that woman, but... That was that. Mm, so that's that sense of guilt that you were writing about when you uh, left that comment at uh, the World Dialogue. Yes, yes. Uh, so it sounds like you feel that men in India, I mean everywhere really, but in this particular instance, men in India have a great responsibility to kind of shine a light on, on, on these incidents. Uh, yes, I think so. And I think uh, what actually India needs is uh, there are certain media campaigns that have been very successful in the past in terms of birth control and uh, other social issues. And I think what really needs to happen is there needs to be a media campaign in terms of changing attitudes, especially uh, misogynistic attitudes uh, of men. And it's not about, you know, safety or or rape for that matter. It's just the simple attitude that women are human beings and there has to be a different way of 
dealing with this. Bharat, you go back to Delhi to visit your family pretty regularly. What do you think are the big changes that uh, have really affected male-female relationships? The biggest uh, change is more women in the workforce. That's the the number one change. And the other thing that I think that that has clearly changed is um, there was a symbiotic relationship between middle class and the underclass in cities. And that with the uh, last, I guess, 15 years of economic growth has been frayed because of lack of space or the competition of space, informal space in Delhi. And I think there is a little more aggression and, and, you, think, and, and you think all of this has kind of com- combined to just make the male-female relationship really tense and somewhat yeah. violent now, quite yes, violent I think in some instances. The, the thing is, the rage that is there in the underclass, unfortunately, gets transposed on the weakest link, and which is urban women who are single, working uh, late at night, that kind of stuff. You know, you spoke earlier, Bharat, uh, you wrote us uh, about the guilt over not doing something when something was happening. What do you do now, given w- what's happened in India? I mean, do you feel like there's something you can do to, to change things? Well, I mean, uh, there are things that I've, I have already been doing whenever I go to India. There's simple things in terms of being respectful to anybody on the street, particularly if I'm on a rickshaw or you know, in traffic or in a mall or anywhere else. My behavior before I came to the U.S. was slightly different. But when I go back, I'm I'm more respectful about that. You know, I try and treat everybody more humanely than I used to when I was in Delhi. Bharat Singh is an urban designer. He's based in Oakland, California. Again, Bharat, thank you very much for writing us and for speaking with us now. Thank you very much, Marco. The conversation continues at theworld.org. Now for something from our language desk. Our language editor, Patrick Cox, is here. And Patrick, uh, in the latest World in Words podcast, you feature a story about endangered languages. Yes, it's something I have to say that I've shied away from a little bit in the past because, well, for no better reason than I I feel as though I've heard the story told again and again exactly the same way. You know, it starts with an old man or an old woman who's described maybe as being in traditional dress. And and then you hear this person speaking in this mysterious tongue. And and the reporter says, this is the last speaker of language X. and, And when this man or woman dies the language will die too. Yeah, but we just can't ignore these stories because they sound like classic fodder for public radio. I mean, it's an intriguing topic, and i got to say one with some serious urgency. Absolutely. It's, it's very dramatic just how quickly languages are dying out, by some estimates, one every two weeks. So I was very excited when I came across a BBC documentary that seemed to sort of go past those cliches. And I think that the reason that they did it was because the person doing the reporting was a linguist who had been immersed in the language in question. His name is Mark Turin. He teaches at Yale and Cambridge. And, and 20 years ago, he went to Nepal. Um, he went up a, an obscure Himalayan valley, and he started learning and documenting the Tangmi language. And that's spelled T-H-A-N-G-M-I, Tangmi. Never heard of it. Well, he's spoken by about 30,000 people. And he ended up writing a dictionary and a grammar for the language. And now he's gone back with a microphone. Here's a little flavor of Mark Turin's return to Nepal with his recollections of the time that he spent there. As I'm panting up this hill, I'm remembering uh, a very formative moment when I realized the difference between oral traditions and written traditions. 
I was in this village and I decided to go with the women of the house to collect fodder for the animals and also firewood for the house. And everywhere we went, the women were pointing out different local plants and trees and shrubs and giving me the local names. Every time they gave me a word, I stopped, pulled out my pencil and my paper from my backpack, and I noted the name down, getting the Nepali, making a note to look it up in a botanical dictionary later. And one of the women turned to me and said, Brother, why do you have to constantly write things down? Can't you just remember these words? And I said, Sister, no, I cannot. I, I can't remember these words. I have to write them down. And that point had occurred to me. These women live in an entirely oral world. They speak many languages, they listen to many languages, and they can recall people, places, locations, even phone numbers now, without the need for writing. For us, our pen and paper, it's our greatest tool. It's also a crutch. Linguist Mark Churin there in Nepal. So, Patrick Cox, how has the Tangmi language fared uh, in the past 20 years? Well, not surprisingly, not very well. Um, Until recently, the Nepali government had a policy of one nation, one culture, one language, the language being Nepali. And everyone, especially the kids, were encouraged to speak Nepali. And it was really understandable that the government was fighting a Maoist insurgency at the time. And, you know, there was a real fear that the country would splinter. Well, now the policy has changed. And the government says it wants to introduce some of these minority languages into schools as the language of instruction in in just the early grades so that kids are learning in the same language that they speak at home. It's not been implemented yet, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. Primarily, there just simply aren't enough teachers who speak these languages. Mm. But there are signs that in Nepal, as in many other countries with this incredible diversity of languages, there's signs that there is the will to at least partially reintroduce languages in the schools where it counts. And you can hear that BBC documentary featuring linguist Mark Churin as well as a competition faced by the 30,000 remaining speakers of the Tangmi language at theworld.org. Thanks so much for coming in. You're welcome, Marco. For our GeoQuiz, we're looking for the secret to a long life. The secret to a long life could be in a person's genes, or maybe it's all about exercise and eating right. But what if it has something to do with where you live? Health researchers have looked at communities in Okinawa, Japan, and on the Italian island of Sardinia, for example. In these so-called blue zones, people typically live longer and in better health than the rest of us. We want you to name a small Greek island that's one of those blue zones. Residents of this island live 10 years longer, on average, than other Europeans. This island's also famous in Greek mythology. It's named after the teenager who plunged into the Aegean Sea after flying too close to the sun. We're back with the island's name and more on why people there live so long in just a bit. This is PRI. 
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For centuries, the Greek island we asked you about in today's GeoQuiz has had some of the attractions of a spa. There are natural hot springs here, but the strongest evidence of this island's health is its 8,000 residents. More than twice as many people living on the island reach the age of 90 as in the U.S., The BBC's Andrew Bomford has visited the Greek island to find out what their secret to long life is. And Andrew, first off, tell us the name of this island. Okay, we're talking about the island of Ikaria, which is uh, in the Aegean Ocean. It's not really a very touristy place, not very well known, I would say. Uh, Even some people in Greece don't know very much about it. So tell us more about this island of Ikaria and what caught the attention of researchers to call it a blue zone. Well, it's a place that, that that researchers from the University of Athens have been looking at for a number of years because they started to realise that there was something special going on there, that people were living to greater ages and in much better health, both mental and physical health, to see what is different about this place to the rest of Greece and to the rest of the Western world. Well, let's meet a few people you met in Icaria uh, before kind of getting into why they are so old. One person you met was a Mr. Moraitis, who I understand just turned 98. How's his health? Is he an ailing 98 or quite active? No, he's a really active 98-year-old. And just to give you an idea, when I uh, went to meet him, he was up picking olives out of his olive trees. You know, So I was just astounded at how uh, well he was doing. I was laughing with him saying, you know, here you are nearly 100 years old and you're up your ladders picking olives. And uh, he was in the middle of the olive harvest and he was pretty... Uh, sanguine about the whole thing, really, saying, well, you know, someone's got to do it. You know, he's got 200 <laughs> olive trees. And uh, so there he was, up his ladders, 98 years old and doing fantastically. Now, another man you met, George Cassiotis, 103 years old. Here's what he told you was his secret. It's my life, and it's the way I've lived my life. I eat healthily. I don't eat poisons like processed food. I don't smoke. I don't get stressed. If I experience the death of someone close to me, I take it philosophically. After all, we know that we're all going to go there. Were you able, Andrew, to kind of like pin down why people on Icaria are living longer? It's definitely a lot to do with their diet. They eat a very typical Mediterranean diet. They eat lots of fresh vegetables, lots of fruit. They eat fish two or three times a week. And uh, they drink a mountain tea, they they call it, which is made from dried herbs such as chamomile, sage, thyme, mint. And they sweeten it with uh, Icarian honey, which is a very dark, luscious kind of honey, which comes from the from the bees there on the island. And so... There's no uh, no pesticides used in producing this. And so it's very, very healthy stuff. And then there are a number of other factors as well, which are, I think are really important. And probably chief among those is the way that they live their life. People visiting each other very frequently, popping in for a drink, something to eat, and living a very sociable sort of life, which means that older people there have got a kind of role in society. They're considered to be vital parts of the community. And so it's a low-stress sort of place. Everyone has a nap at lunchtime, Mm. for example. And I think a combination of all these things uh, is what makes the difference uh, with their longevity. Was your trip to Icaria convincing enough to prompt uh, some of your own lifestyle changes in the new year, Andrew? Perhaps the thing I learned most was was about de-stressing, I think. You know, I'm a busy journalist, okay, and uh, a a lot of us live really busy lives, But when I arrived, I kind of realized that this was not the sort of place that you watch the clock. You know, you don't make appointments. You know, Mm. life just kind of drifts by in a kind of delightful way. And I think it just taught me that sometimes, you know, we can just be a 
bit too high pressure sometimes in our busy lives that we should just relax and take it easy and, and then things happen that you never perhaps expected to happen. The BBC's Andrew Bomford, thanks so much for telling us about uh, Icaria, which is the answer to our GeoQuiz today. Okay, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. See some pictures of Icaria and its young at heart residents. We've got a slideshow at theworld.org. Finally today, the story of how a young man from a township near Cape Town, South Africa, wound up singing opera. The young man is Meteto Mapoi, and as you're about to hear, he was discovered by pianist Dirk Blazer quite by chance. <laughs> I found Mateto literally on the street. He was singing with a group of friends. To my utter amazement, they were singing Italian songs, and I happened to love the Italian repertoire. He had the best voice of the group. I talked to him and said, listen, Mateto, let's work together. You with your voice, Italian songs, I play the piano, and we started doing gigs on markets and also in a few Italian restaurants. When he was only four years old, his father abandoned the family, but left a CD with Italian songs. It was Pavarotti's CD, so they were all Italian songs, a language that was so strange to me. You know, I couldn't understand a word from that language, but the music, the way it was, was making me feel, it made me feel like singing this music. I think also it was because of it was my father's city, you know, because I always wanted to be around him. I always wanted to learn from him, to grow up in front of him, you know, to, to have his hand when he says, no, don't do that. Yes, do that. You know, I never have none of that from him. my friends that are sing with in choirs at school we decided you know what let's go and sing in town because they also liked the music so um, apparently we became a, a very good group Ooh, I love it I love it I love Friends entered his name for the Voice Academy, which is a school for talented black singers to train them for classic music and opera. Longer. Out of over a hundred applicants, Meteto was selected. No, that's much better. <laughs> One day I will impress this town because it's my hometown. Maybe one day I will see myself making my own show here, invite those who didn't want me to come sing here. Because music is actually joy. God gives you a voice for you to use it.
the voice there of Mateto Mapoi from Cape Town, South Africa. We also heard from his mentor, pianist Dirk Blazer. And that's all for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.